Welcome back to the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. You can subscribe and stream The Groundless Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, TuneIn, and YouTube. And of course, find out more at groundlessground.com. This episode features a rich, in-depth dialogue with Buddhist teacher and author Shyla Catherine on her new book, Beyond Distraction, Five Practical Ways to Focus the Mind. Using a Theravada Buddhist approach for cultivating focus, clarity, and wise action, Shyla offers an effective five-step method for changing distorted habitual thoughts. Step one, replace unwanted thoughts. Two, examine the dangers of distracting thoughts. Three, avert distraction. Four, investigate the causes of distraction. And five, exert dedicated resolve. This informative and enlightening conversation will be of great benefit to anyone seeking to tame a distracted mind, as well as mental health professionals who favor top-down interventions. It was a great honor to spend time with Shyla, a Buddhist teacher and consummate practitioner whom I respect and admire. Shyla Catherine, this is going to be extremely interesting, not only for the listeners, but also for me. You are on my short list of the best West Buddhist teachers. I am extremely gratified that you've allowed me to have this time with you. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. You have a new book out. I know the Buddhist practitioners will be ecstatic, but anybody who works in mental health will be so excited about this book. It's called Beyond Distraction, Five Practical Ways to Focus the Mind. Usually what I do is I start by letting the listeners get to know the person I'm talking to. Sure, I can say a few things about my past. Certainly, I grew up in a relatively conventional way in California on the San Francisco Peninsula. And I grew up a really ordinary, very ordinary life. No great spiritual experiences from early childhood or anything like that. But when I heard about meditation from a student in high school, I knew I wanted to do it. Whatever it was, I didn't know what it was, (laughs) but I wanted to do it. So I started my practice when I was still in high school and loved it. Which meditation practice were you doing in high school? Because when you and I were in high school, at least on the East Coast, transcendental meditation was the big thing that everybody was trying first. My approach was to go to the yellow pages. You remember (laughs) what those are, right? I do. And the one was a TM place. So I did that for a few years. It's a lovely practice. (laughs) And after a couple of years, I heard about Buddhism. That's when it really, really touched me very deeply. When I heard the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings on what are the causes for that unsatisfactory quality, dukkha. I heard about the teachings on the Four Noble Truths. And I thought, they're saying something real. They're saying something true here. It was the shift in my practice from just using meditation to calm and quiet the mind, to recognizing the insight that develops and the liberating potential of meditation and the Dharma practice. 
after I attended my first retreat, sort of discovered the Buddhist teachings, it made sense to me why I loved meditation. It wasn't about sitting down and being able to be calm and blissful. It was about being able to understand the conditions of the mind, to being able to have mental tools to investigate what's happening in the mind. And that enriched my practice and, and that has maintained my interest over now 40 years. Where did you go on Buddhist retreat? Yeah, well, well, there wasn't the internet at that time where people would just search and get all kinds of choices. And then the challenge is to try and sort out what's reputable. <laughs> this was um, more just a word of mouth thing. I heard about a Buddhist retreat from somebody who had attended a Buddhist retreat. I got the information and I signed up and went. And it was a 10-day silent insight meditation retreat that was absolutely remarkable in the sense that it was the first time for days at a time I looked at my mind. There was no escaping it. I mean, we were in silence. There wasn't any distraction and nothing else to do. And if I tried to think of something that was distracting, that was just distracting. <laughs> So I had to see the thoughts, I had to see the antics of the mind that was at play and usually causing me suffering and trouble. This is so interesting because your entire book is literally about that. That's true. That, and that was one of the first things that interested me, but it took 40 years to come around to wanting to write a book about it. <laughs> Women Buddhist teachers, even in the West, who are as respected as you are, Maybe you could just give some sense of the path that you took in a largely male-dominated tradition. And also, we should say you have been renowned for teaching a very specific aspect of the Theravada teachings that many Theravada teachers don't teach. Mm. So these two things set you apart. Would you be willing to say something about all of that? Sure. My love was always of looking at the mind and the development of the possibility of peace, the possibility of awakening as the Buddha taught. It inspired me, so I practiced deeply. So I went to many, many retreats. I was practicing with any retreat and any teacher that I could find that was teaching a retreat. It took me a long time to get through college and graduate school because I was attending so many retreats. I had accumulated incompletes. Nevertheless, I felt that this was really important. I had no aspirations to become a teacher. I wanted to really know for myself with direct knowledge, the liberation that the path promises, you know, that it suggests is truly possible for people to cultivate their mind. So that motivation was very strong. And I practiced in the West for quite a few years. And then I went to India and I practiced in India for a number of years. I also met a non-Buddhist teacher, a guru that I found very inspiring and spent a number of years with him and practiced in the monasteries in Thailand and in Nepal. All of this is before I even had a thought of possibly teaching. I already now had more than a decade of serious practice under my belt. Maybe I'd been practicing meditation for, I guess it was 16, 17 years. And one of my teachers asked me to consider teaching. So that started to shift me into more of a sharing mode of the Dharma. But I was committed to keeping my practice at the forefront because I do think that there's a risk 
of talking something but not actually doing it, <laughs> especially after decades of practice, it takes quite a resolve and a commitment and an ongoing love of the Dharma to just to keep the practice not only alive, but going deep. I had been teaching just a few years and I was feeling like I wanted some greater depth in my meditation practice. And I was already pretty much doing three months a year in retreat for many years. I had a serious commitment to deepening my practice in the form of silent retreats. I went and did a very long retreat, more than 10 months, where I focused on the practice of deep absorption called jhana. That's become a bit of my specialty that I can offer into teaching, my expertise because I practiced it very deeply in that long retreat. And then I practiced it with a variety of teachers, primarily with Venerable Palak Sayadaw, who's a Burmese master, went through his course of training, not only in the samadhi and practiced all of the concentration objects that lead to these deep absorption states that are called the four jhanas. And they're beautiful states where the mind is very stable, and very settled and still and suffused with the balanced quality of not sensual pleasure, but spiritual pleasure, a kind of deep bliss that is extremely rejuvenating and healing for the mind. And also states of profound and deep equanimity where the mind is just absolutely blissfully still without the pleasure of the bliss. And so these prepare the mind, they restore the mind, they prime the mind so that the mind is able, it's fit, it's quick, it's malleable, it's eager, it's interested, it's able to do very precise and deep insight. Without that deep concentration, then people have a lot of insights, but they tend to be around the ways we're distracted. They tend to be around our habitual formations the harmful stories that we nurture about ourselves. And we can have a lot of very important, and I think we have to have a lot of very important insights into the more personal dimensions and the personal patterns and our conditioning so that yes. we can respond skillfully to that. But the Buddha suggested that, that really awakening isn't happening at that personal level. There's an impersonal recognition of the emptiness of self that we see the, the stories of self just as that a story. We stop trying to make a better one and we simply stop identifying with. To some extent, I think we need to have stories in our minds. We communicate through stories. We live out our lives. But I don't think we have to forget that they're just stories. They don't need to be the truth of things. We can see that they're just a mental construction and we're not bound by them. So this practice of deep concentration was very profound for me, not just because the states themselves were rich and interesting, but because it allowed a deeper kind of insight practice to occur. It allowed me to study some of the traditional techniques that are both taught for samadhi, the concentration, and insight, the vipassana that basically propel the mind through a sequence of insight knowledges um, that culminate in the realization of Nibbana, of awakening. And yeah. so there are traditional systems that are taught, um, that are preserved in the Buddhist tradition and the Visuddhimagga, this ancient meditation manual that literally describe how to develop the mind 
I had the opportunity because I had done the background and had prepared my mind with the fundamental and basic practices over many years. I had the opportunity when I met Venerable Palak Sayadaw to really go deep into this and do his do that training course a few times through. This book is sort of the primer to allow an individual to experience that basic level of insight and awakening so that they have a foundation from which they can then go and do some jhana practice or deeper nature of mind practice, if that's what they wish to do. But this book is such a jewel because it distills the essence of what the historical Buddha's teachings had to offer in terms of the nature of human suffering, the causes of human suffering, the path to alleviation of human suffering. I think this book does a fantastic job of distinguishing and deconstructing what is, as you call, narrative and wholly without merit, totally untrue, completely distorted mental activity from the basic functions of mind for humans to exist in a human body and actually work their daily lives. I think most people that I work with as a psychotherapist are frankly habituated and addicted to the idea that the narrative is reality and they don't have the skills to do what this book is giving them a chance to do, which is to know mind, not as narrative, completely delineate narrative. Would you say any of that is accurate? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's really important to be able to distinguish the narrative content from the process of thinking and the conditioning that is involved in that process. When do we buy into false narratives? And when can we just see the narrative running as a kind of manifestation of conditioning? So the issues really become the degree of clinging to the stories, the degree of attachment to the thoughts. But until that we can see a thought as just a thought, then we will be caught by the story. We will believe the narrative. We will think that it is somehow true because we won't actually see what it is. It's a thought. There's a truth in, wow, this is a thought. It's really a thought. It's a discrete mental event. But the story is another matter. The story is affected by our desires, our fears, by our emotions, by our, our past conditioning, by our culture, by the way we were raised, by our assumptions and biases. The narrative is always a fiction to some extent. And there's nothing wrong with being able to think in a narrative way. We need that. The mind is a wonderful, beautiful thing. Meditation doesn't stop it from thinking. It allows us to think more clearly so that we're not seduced by the content, but we're able to explore. When we can explore the conditioning that leads to certain kinds of narratives that are not very helpful to us, <laughs> not very helpful. And we can also cultivate lines of thought, trains of thought, directions, that are very supportive. Some people might think that this book is so, is so basic and fundamental, it should have been the first one that I wrote. My first book was on the deep absorption states of the jhanas, 
And my second book, a wisdom, my first book was focused in fearless. My second book was wisdom wide and deep going through the systematic practice of Samadhi and Vipassana as taught by the Burmese master Palak Sayadaw. And so now I'm coming back to teaching about distraction. I should have wrote that one first, shouldn't I? Often it's as our practice gets deeper that we realize the richness in the simple things, the way that we can just not take for granted, I can let go of distraction and go deep into concentration. Now let's look at that distraction. Let's look really carefully at it and develop our skills so that we're not compelled. We're not a slave to the distracting tendencies. Because sometimes it can be very painful if we're a slave to our thoughts. Uh, We can have a thought and ruminate on it such that we don't know the way out. And that can be extremely painful. There is a certain amount of skill development so that we can have a wider range of skills to meet the patterns that we have, to be able to cut through the rumination, to be able to let go of the restlessness, to shift our thoughts from a direction that's harmful to a direction that's helpful to understand where the thoughts lead, to understand the conditioning that they're arising out of, and to cultivate the capacity to be clear enough so that when we apply our energy towards one thing, even if it's to just not think something and to do something else, we can actually do that in a wise and clear way, not a reactive way. We develop all of these skills of mind but we're developing them not just to kind of have a fit mind, but we're developing them because the fetter of restlessness keeps us trapped. It keeps us bound. And it's one of the fetters that really keep us caught in this delu- the delusion of self, conceit and the restlessness are deeply rooted fetters that keep us bound to the cycle of suffering. While we're developing these skills, we can have a lot of insight that actually is quite liberating. And we can be creating the conditions that enable the mind to go deep into samadhi. These five strategies that you list in your book and you thoroughly explicate, and then you offer exercises so people can actually train the mind. These five for me are the core of awakening without this, there is no awakening as far as I can tell. There can be being lost in blissful states, which is clinging, by the way. There can be using meditation practice to distract oneself from the material within one's psyche, within the mind, within the body that's distressing and needs to be attended to. So without this, I don't believe there is a way for a person to develop the capacity to rest in anything with what you described earlier, equanimity, with clarity, with open-heartedness that arises from actually knowing. So I thought maybe you'd like to go through these five incredible skills that you offer in the book. Oh, sure. I'd love to. And I already hinted at some of them. There's a number of very practical teachings in the discourses of the Buddha in what are called the the suttas. I honed in on two particular discourses that are in the middle-length discourses because they give a sequence of practical instructions. 
And then I elaborated those with a lot of contemporary examples and ways to work with these ideas to develop the skills, not only in a daily meditation practice, but also in our activities, in our relationship, in the way that we engage in work or whatever we're doing. Because I think it's really important that whatever insights we have on the cushion don't stay there. They have to integrate. If they're real insights, they're going to transform our contact with everything, our way of perceiving anything. So that's going to translate into the way that we live our lives and the way that we experience them. So there are exercises that are both meditative, but largely interactive and kind of in daily activities. And the first step is to first recognize a thought is thought. And then to notice, is the thought helping us or harming us? The traditional language is wholesome or unwholesome, which are translations of the Pali terms kusala and akusala. But it basically means, is that a useful thought or is that causing trouble in my own life, in my own mind? Is it beneficial or not beneficial? People can sometimes get entangled in these kind of the language of wholesome and unwholesome or the Pali jargon of kusala and akusala. But I think we know this is helpful. And this is harmful most of the time. There might be some times when we're so seduced by something, we don't recognize its harm. Nevertheless, later on in the process, we're going to have to look more closely. So that's the first step is just have a sense. Is it wholesome or unwholesome? Now, of course, the Buddhist tradition gives us lists to check. For example, (laughs) is it rooted in greed, hate, and delusion? If so, it's probably harmful. Is it based on thoughts of craving for sensual desire or that attitude of ill will and hate or cruelty, the wanting to harm? Well, it's probably not very beneficial. You can use some of the traditional Buddhist lists, but very often all we have to do is just ask ourselves and we'll we'll sense this is not so good. And so once we sense that there's certain thoughts, we'd actually like to develop some skills to not be caught by then we work with those unwholesome thoughts. In one discourse, it gives us five strategies, which is the core structure of the book. We choose a few thoughts to work with, or we just develop the skills with whatever thoughts happened to arise that day, either way. And we develop the flexibility to shift, to replace a harmful thought with a more helpful one. And one of the classic things people can do is if you're angry at somebody, the tendency of mind is to always notice their faults. And if you keep going that direction, you're going to find plenty of faults and won't see their good qualities. So it'll be harder to connect the tendencies of mind. So knowing the tendency that if you're irritated with somebody, if you're angry, then intentionally shift from a thought of something that you are angry about or disapprove of, shift to something you respect about them something that you value about them. It shifts you out of the rut that could lead to hatred, and it shifts you to something that recognizes something more positive. But it's not just kind of empty positive thinking. It's developing the skill to get out of one mode and consciously opt for a better mode. If somebody is completely lost in some kind of lustful desire, and they know that if they pursue this, this is going to cause great trouble in their family relationship, then they can shift the way they think about it. So instead of focusing on the things that cause that kind of lust, they can focus on something else, you know, something where just 
you know, two people working on something or something that is not triggering. So we develop that ability to shift from one thing to another. Meditators do this all the time because one of the primary instructions with many mindfulness approaches is to settle your mind on a present experience. Maybe you feel the warmth of your hands touching. Maybe you feel the contact of the buttocks on the seat, or maybe you feel the expansion of the belly with each breath. And um, if your mind wanders off into thought, you come back. (laughs) Well, that's the same practice. You're replacing the wandering, restless thought with something that is actually present. Mm -hmm. So we do this all the time when we're developing mindfulness, but it's included as strategy one. Strategy two, we apply if strategy one didn't quite work. And most of the time, strategy one actually works. So strategy one only works if your goal is to ameliorate something that's unpleasant. Not just unpleasant, unwholesome. Uh, Unpleasant or unwholesome. It only works as an antidote. And it's a good one because usually there's a lot in present experience unless you're in a war zone and there's bombs falling all around you, there's generally quite a lot that is happening that the mind can rest in, which is not disturbing. So that shifting of attention is very helpful, but in the end, it doesn't give you the insight into the reactivity toward unpleasantness. There needs to be more. Of course, you give more. You have to go deeper. Otherwise, the first strategy could end up being a method for avoidance. And that's not what it's about. It's about developing flexibility, being able to learn that just because we're thinking something doesn't mean we have to keep going there. We're not compelled. We have some degree of choice and we're practicing making different choices. If we never make the choice to shift our attention, then we're going to allow the conditioning to keep getting stronger and stronger. That kind of mental rut is going to get deeper. So it's really important to develop some capacity to shift. But I think it's very important to know that we're not shifting just to something more pleasant. We're shifting to something more useful, something beneficial, something more the traditional language would be wholesome. Because there are times when we actually want to stay focused on something painful and yet look at it in a way that is wholesome. So something could could trigger anger, but we want to maybe be mindful of that. So we want to shift to the mindfulness, even if it's still painful. It's a subtle thing, but I think it's also can be used sometimes if we're overwhelmed by pain to just be able to find something pleasant or neutral. I think that can go a long way in ordinary life. Sometimes life is hard and it can be overwhelming and being able to make those shifts just to look out the window and and feel like, oh, there's a green tree that's getting some buds and blossoms and being able to kind of lighten up a little bit. But you're right, we have to go further than that. But we can't just dive deep into the causes of the trouble until we've developed some skill. And the flexibility is one skill. Otherwise, if we if we don't have the flexibility to move our attention and we think we have to go deep into it, we might feel like we're getting stuck in an overwhelmed state. So we develop this skill of being able to replace. Then we need to look If the mind still is caught, maybe we need to look at why is that harmful? What is the danger in it? 
because sometimes people make crazy excuses for continuing patterns that are very destructive. So we have to look honestly and see the danger involved. What is it leading to? If I continue down that path, where is it going to lead? Is it going to lead to ignorance, confusion, a rigidification of beliefs, of, of views and opinions? Is it actually going to be helpful or is it going to be harmful? And so we have to investigate. And the classic language is to examine the danger in those thoughts. Uh, because sometimes when people are so seduced by their thoughts, even if they're painful, they're not thinking about where it's leading to. And we need to step back a little bit and ask ourselves, we are engaged in a process of conditioning ourselves. If we repeat an action again and again, we get better at that action. If we speak in a certain way again and again, we tend to speak that way. People who complain a lot have practiced complaining. <laughs> you don't just blossom as a great complainer. You've practiced it to get good at it. So there's, there's actions of body and there's actions of speech, but there's also actions of mind. And so we look and see what are the thought actions that we are practicing and getting good at? And is that what we want to be practicing? And is that what we want to be getting good at? And sometimes we look at a lot of our thoughts and we realize, you know, that's not a road I want to go down. And that can inspire us to then make another shift. And sometimes th that shift takes us to the third step, which is withdrawing the fuel. I like to call it ignoring it or avoiding it or forgetting it. But some people think, golly, that's the opposite of mindfulness. You know, why should we ignore things? Why should we just avoid them? Don't we need to be mindful of them? Don't we need to confront them? But before we can go deep, confront something deeply, we have to have this flexibility. We have to be able to turn our attention, not only towards something, but also away. We need to notice how we're fueling a pattern and withdraw that fuel. Because sometimes the very way we give attention to something feeds it. And we don't know that. I really want to be clear. That's not avoidance because that is the practice of right intention, actually. The person is specifically in seeing the nature of something that's harmful or destructive and they are intentionally choosing to withdraw the energy to withdraw the attention from that thing that will never for me be considered avoidance because the person is fully aware and deliberately choosing from right intention. So I would never call what you described in your book as withdrawing the fuel avoidance. I would never call it destruction either because of the nature of seeing it as it is, knowing that it's not something to be giving energy or fuel to, and then intentionally moving the awareness away. That for me is the core of Buddhist practice. I use the word avoidance just because we find that in the, in the ancient discourses, but I would agree with your interpretation entirely. So I think for anybody who's still a little stuck on what could be considered poor translation, maybe try the word avert, which I think would be a more accurate translation rather than avoid for a Westerner who has the conditioning around the word avoidance. For them, averting something might feel different than avoidance. If we had had this conversation before the book was published, I think I would go in and change some of the uh, words avoid to avert. 
it's about averting our attention. It's about developing wise attention so that the exactly. way we attend to experience, first of all, we begin to understand how attention functions, how we're drawn to certain patterns and what happens when we attend to that. What is affectively sticky and what is not? These are the modern neuroscience terms for yeah. clinging. And there's a lot of studies on attention to research how attention functions. I sprinkle a little bit of that into my book. <laughs> my book is primarily rooted in the Buddha Dharma. One of the great things about meditating and looking at the mind is we begin to realize that what we believe we see is not the whole story. The research shows that, but we need to really know that. The skills with attention are really important. The sense of identifying with those patterns loosens up and we can have a lot more freedom to develop perhaps different things in life than what the conditioned pattern is, is, is developing. Too often people start down one track and feel that they're stuck there and then identify with it. And that just builds and reinforces the entrapment. But we can develop a lot of flexibility, which allows us to grow in so many ways, not only to free the mind from the causes of suffering, but to just be open and grow in life. But once we've developed this kind of flexibility, I think it invites a deeper investigation. And that's how we get to the fourth strategy, because this is not just about going down one track and shifting to another. We're not just manipulating the mind. We have to understand the causes. So we've prepared the mind by being able to replace, see where that pattern is leading and the danger of it and shifting or withdrawing the fuel from it. We prepared the mind to be able to more skillfully look really deeply at interaction of thoughts and emotions, at the conditioning that is at the root of it. And very often when we look deeply, we are going to start to see some very deeply held beliefs that are not true. Like anything that begins, I am whatever is basically false or at some level false. <laughs> You have to explain this, Shiloh, because I think most people would tell you you're crazy for saying what you just said. Yeah, I think there's a fundamental belief in a fixed, like I am whatever this is. Well, I am a teacher. Well, well, sure, there's a functioning of a, in a teacher role, but that's not I am as a fixed, eternally existing entity. I am strong. Well, not always, not when I'm sick, not when I'm injured. So this sense of trying to identify with experience is a deeply ingrained formation of a sense of identity and self. This is an important process to develop a sense of our responsibilities, our values of who we are in the world, how we manifest. There's nothing wrong with developing identity without it. Well, I think it would be very difficult to function and I think it would be pathological <laughs> to have no sense of identity. But this is another situation where we don't need to clamp down and cling to that identity, give it more substance that it has. We construct a sense of who we are through our thoughts and our thoughts are continually changing and we continue to reconstruct our sense of self. And if we look at our thoughts in our minds when we're sitting quietly or meditating, you might even see yourself doing it actively by rehearsing how you're going to say something and how the other person is going to respond 
and how you're going to be presented and what they're going to think of you. And, oh, you didn't like that. So you change it a little bit and have a different ending. Or you go to a past event, something that happened yesterday that was a little bit embarrassing. So you pretend in your own mind, like you said something different and the result was different. And so there can be all kinds of delusions where we keep constructing and reconstructing and constructing and reconstructing a sense of self. And it can create a tremendous amount of anxiety, especially if we have the belief that it's really self, that it's really who we are. The worry lightens a lot when we see it as simply patterns of thought. We have to slow down because this is where people have trouble with the Buddhist teachings. It could sound like dissociation to people. It could sound like you're stepping back from embodied reality of who you are, which is exactly the antithesis of what you're saying. This is stepping more deeply in to the reality of what we are changing reality, yes, dynamic reality, the processes of body and mind that are occurring and forming and changing. So we're very much in touch with, quite intimate with our sensory experience, with the arising of emotions, of thoughts, of feelings, of the way that we perceive things, but we're not reifying them, fixing them, solidifying them, and saying, this is who I am am. And then once we do that, then we lose touch with that dynamic changing process. We're actually more disassociated because now we're attached to an image that's in our own minds. And we have to do all kinds of insane things to try and get other people in the world to recognize that formation of thought. And then it's changes anyway. So we have to try and cling to it even more and to try and get the world to recognize that. And it is absolutely exhausting. And it takes us away from the possibility of being alive and mindful and wisely respond to this body, these feelings, emotions, values, thoughts, experiences, and the whole history of our experiences that inform our perceptions. We lose touch with the dynamic process. If we clamp down an idea, I am this, or I am this kind of person, or I am like this, with a real strong attachment to that particular view. What you just described is the most beautiful description of impermanence, not self, and emptiness. Thank you. It's so simple, actually. I bow down to you because people are always reifying and making something out of those three qualities of experience so that they turn it into something people are supposed to work to understand. Yeah, it's a lot of suffering and it's an awful lot of work for one person to develop this belief that is just a belief. And then to try and get everybody else to believe the truth of our belief. And then our belief inevitably will change. We're always then in struggle. And this is part of what perpetuates the distracting thoughts because the project is doomed to fail. It's only held up by the repetition of thoughts. So we just keep going over the same thoughts in different ways, reinforcing it. And we're out of touch with what's actually present. We're not mindful with what we're experiencing now because we're lost in a story of self and we're not connected with what is. And I think it really prevents us from really doing good things, bringing out 
our wisdom and our compassion in the present moment, because we're caught by trying to reinforce a story that we've told ourselves. So this doesn't mean that there is no self-functioning. There is a sense of, I am a being, I am an individual, I am distinct from you. I know that I have different thoughts, different feelings, different history, but the clinging around that falls away. The belief that it is really this solid, eternally existing thing, the identification with it falls away. And we opened to so much more freedom to be able to be present and mindful and respond with compassion and wisdom to the experience that's at hand. Instead of just trying to sort everything based upon what reinforces or validates my particular view. It's very important, I think, to investigate what is fueling our habitual thoughts. We don't need to jump right to this thought of self, because very often, sometimes there's just a trigger that's closer to the surface. This thought process is reinforced by this emotion, and we have to unpack thought and emotion. That's kind of like spiraling in to look at what were the supporting conditions for that thought, and then what were the supporting conditions for that supporting condition? and what was supported that condition. And it's kind of like spiraling in a little bit to unravel what were the causes for that reaction, for that thought process? What is holding it in place? I would have to say, if not 100% of the time, 99.9% of the time, or every time, everything I can remember, at some point or other, cycles or spirals into this recognition of some internal belief that I know are ready to be false about I am this, and the thoughts are trying to deny the falseness of, and it all the struggle falls away just when I see, oh, these are thoughts about self. That's all, just thoughts. We don't dive deep right for the self and not self issue because people can then try to adopt that as a belief. You know, I am a not self. That's all still identification and attachment. Clinging, even enlightenment is something the self will reify as its own. It will try. But if there's wisdom, it will see that as just another thought and it won't have a chance to. But it's very true. Even in the suttas, we find discourses where the Buddha said that identification with Nibbana is not Nibbana. It's only one who is without clinging that realizes not Nibbana. One who thought they had an experience of Nibbana and then clings to it and says, I had the experience of Nibbana. That's not Nibbana. The fact that it's interesting, I think, is wonderful. And we don't need to be threatened by this. It's very interesting to look carefully at how we construct the story of self. Um, How do we build and reinforce a sense of self through our contact with experience, through the things we see, hear, smell, taste, touch? How does that process happen? And it's an investigative process. This is a wholesome investigation. It's not a way of judging ourselves for having a sense of self. I try to give some structures for how to engage in that investigation in the book. And I won't go into all the details. There are questions we can ask. There are structures for investigation that we can use so that we don't get lost in that process. For me, the last step is probably the most important one, and it's the hardest for people to do. I think the last one can be hard for people to do if they haven't prepared appropriately with the first four. And the last one is to basically apply resolve, to be able to see one of those pesky thought habits, thought patterns that endured even after we applied the first four strategies. 
we already saw its danger. We already investigated its cause. We've already tried to replace it and pull the energy away. Nevertheless, it's still obsessing the mind. And so we have to be able to say no, just no, and actually mean it. And to say it without a shred of aversion, no self-hate at all. Too many people try to make this the first strategy. And there's a thought, they see it's unwholesome, and then they hate themselves for having the thought and they clench their teeth and they say, I'm not going to think that anymore. And they're just thinking about what a terrible person they are for having had that thought. Uh, that doesn't work at all. That fuels the thought, that fuels the identification. But if we have developed these skills in sequence, by the time we get here, we have already understood the pattern so deeply that it's wisdom that says, not one more minute of my time. That thought does not get a shred of energy again. It's a protection. And I think we need discipline. Sometimes like a maybe a child needs a parent to set a boundary and to say, no, with the love that we would have of our, for our own child, that we would say to our own mind, don't go there. And the fullness of the love, the commitment to clarity, to peace, to, to knowledge, there's just no anger or aversion at all. I think that this is an, a really, really important one, is to be able to have that resolve and to be able to, in a way, take a vow. I am not going to add more hatred to my life. That thought may have come up unbidden, but I am not going to fuel it, not even with one more thought. Discipline and setting boundaries is a wonderful thing. It's not mean. It's not harsh. Setting boundaries is being able to act with a great deal of wisdom, and it reserves our energy to develop the things that we want to develop. So I love this one, but I think it's important that we recognize it's our last resort. What do you mean last resort? We don't start with this strong resolve. We have to cultivate the mind first. Most of the habitual habits will already have been resolved through the wisdom of seeing its causes or through just withdrawing the energy or by seeing the danger of what it's leading to or by just replacing it with something else, you know, being more mindful of the present moment. The vast majority of things will be taken care of without putting down that line, you know, saying you don't cross that line. But there comes a time when we do put down that line and then we have to actually mean it and not cross it or we weaken the resolve if we don't have that actual resolve. I find discipline, determination and resolve are one of the greatest gifts of the Buddhist teachings. I love hearing that because I hear too often the reverse. People hear them as somehow controlling or harsh. But I would agree. I think discipline, resolve, renunciation. Renunciation is huge. To not be seduced, to let go. I think these are, are really important and they're beautiful qualities, just beautiful things that show a sense of inner confidence. And one of the things that allows us to make a resolve is to have the confidence, the inner confidence that our wholesome qualities are stronger than our defilements and to know that our virtues are there for us. So we don't need to be seduced in that. And when we say no, we're saying it out of love. We're saying it with the strength of our virtue, saying it with the complete confidence of our deeper commitments 
And I think that and being reminded again and again, we don't need to be seduced again and again by those same habits. Throughout the book, I kept having this sense of this really somehow is a manual and virtuous conduct. And yet the term virtue, virtuous conduct, ethical conduct didn't come up very much. The training that you are putting forth in this book is a training that is central to having the capacity to recognize not just what's wholesome, but what is virtuous and what desires are virtuous. Bhavana is a great example, wouldn't you say? You can't aspire to liberation without bhavana, without having the desire for liberation. And yet there are many unvirtuous ways to go about getting liberated. It seems to me like there has to be some container for recognizing what is virtuous conduct and what is not virtuous conduct and applying that throughout this beautiful mind training that you're putting forth in this book. The book itself is like a manual for virtuous conduct, even though it's not really stated like that. Yeah, it's true. I didn't really talk about virtuous behaviors or ethical precepts or mm -hmm. that sort of thing at all. But my understanding of every aspect of the Dharma path is a purification of virtue. So yes. we're not trying to gain some special powers. We're purifying the mind from the forces of greed, hate, and delusion. And the realization of deep concentration states doesn't occur because we want them so bad, we force everything else away and get concentrated. It's because we've cleaned up our mind to the extent that it can rest at ease in these states of deep and profound stillness. And the realization of Nibbana isn't some really super cool spiritual experience with fireworks that gives us some trophy at the end or some kind of empowerment to be an awakened person. No, it's the purification of the mind that ends greed, hate, and delusion. That's what awakening is about, is the ending of greed, hate, and delusion. Although that's all very Buddhist language, it's essentially about cleaning up our act. I think we know that when we engage in any act of body, speech, or mind that is rooted in greed, hate, and a distorted view, a deluded view of how things are, doesn't end well. There might sometimes be a certain amount of sensual pleasure, you know, like if we act with greed, sometimes we can get something pleasant, but it doesn't end well. It doesn't go deep. It doesn't, it doesn't free the mind. So I'm glad to hear that it felt virtuous, even though it wasn't about virtue, because I actually think every day that we're blessed with life, every day that, that we have to live a life, let it be a good life. Let it be an encounter. Let it be a commitment that in some way is not reinforcing greed, hate, and delusion. It doesn't have to be the most selfless, you know, charitable activity every single moment of our lives, but in some way it's inclined towards the good. And that can just be to have an undiluted perception in the sense of like, try and see something clearly for as it is right now, try and see the impermanence of things, try and um, recognize the conditioned nature of things that just brings so much more wisdom and compassion. Do you think there's anything we missed that you would like to share? 
about what you put into the book. People who listened to this, if they're interested, I hope will read the book <laughs> because um, the book goes into a lot more exploration. I had the benefit of working with students. I first built an online course on this subject and I have taught retreats. So I was actually working with teaching this system for a number of years before writing the book. I hadn't thought it would make a great book, but I never had time. And then the pandemic hit and suddenly all my retreats were canceled. So I no longer had an excuse to say I don't have time. So I made it my little pandemic project. But I was working with a group of students who were really keen on this. And it was very interesting to see how these general steps can be worked with in a wide range of ways, both in different people's meditation and their relationships and their work situations, their family life, their, their hobbies, their daily activities, the range of examples that people were giving me in how they were working with it was really wonderful and really enriched the book. Sure, this was taught in the early discourses of the Buddhists. So this system is 2,600 years old. And I think that's totally cool. I mean, I find the early discourses really inspiring because I think, wow, you know, the Buddha taught this and it's been worked with for thousands of years. And it's neat to me that it's still so helpful. I'm glad you mentioned the retreats. I thought maybe you could give the listeners some idea of how to access the retreats. You are giving some retreats in, I think, 2022, particularly on this material. So although I have written three books, I'm not, I, I consider myself primarily a teacher. I work with people to deepen their practice. And I do so in a number of forms. Retreats where we come together at a various kinds of retreat centers for several days in silence five days, seven days, 10 day retreats. And during that time, we're basically developing mindfulness practices and there'll be different themes of the retreats. So sometimes we'll be working with mindfulness with breathing or mindfulness of the body or the theme of the retreat will be loving kindness practice or overcoming distracting thoughts. People engage in a deepening of their meditation practice and I guide them in the deepening of the meditation practice but I also teach particular set or system because it gives a nice structure for the retreat. There's always going to be some people at the retreats where their practice is going in a different direction. The priority is where their practice is going, but the structure of the group instructions will be around something like this for those retreats that are called beyond distractions or overcoming distracting thoughts. I also offer online courses. And those are on a variety of themes. Some are study of the early discourses of the Buddha. Some are on deepening concentration and developing the qualities, cultivating the conditions that allow the mind to become concentrated. Some actually explore the jhana states and some are on loving kindness and insight practices. And I also have developed the course on overcoming distracting thoughts. My online courses are usually promoted through bodhicourses.org. And my organization is called Bodhi Courses. And I also um, have a local meditation group, which is local to me in um, Silicon Valley. 
that um, is called Insight Meditation South Bay. And there's a page on the Insight Meditation South Bay website, imsb.org, that lists all my retreats. Post-pandemic, we're just gradually bringing the in-person programs back on. Thank you. This has been so informative. It's just been wonderful to spend this time with you, listening to your wisdom, your teachings. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation with you very much. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.